Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 172 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian. You know, sometimes you have a full episode planned out, you have the whole rundown, and suddenly a muse speaks to you and decides to take you in a different direction, such as the case with episode 172. I got Angelo's blessing to bring in um, my good friend Josh Mockley, uh, a literal ringer uh, about the conversation we had um, about things that are important to me that we don't necessarily get to talk about on Double Density a lot, that being creators' rights, comic books, the graphic novel market, emerging technologies, and more. So I decided to uh, invite Josh over, and suddenly 20 minutes turned into a full 40, and here we are with a full episode of Double Density. We will return to our regular scheduled programming next week. Without further ado, here we go. Josh Mockley is an educator by trade, a trivia host in his spare time, a long-standing friend, and more germane to the convo we're about to have. He's also a reader of all things comic book and graphic novel related, and someone I find myself talking shop with uh, a lot when it comes to the comic book industry. So Josh, thank you for coming on to Double Density to talk about a thing I never get to talk about on here, which is everything uh, graphic novel related. <laughs> That's the nicest thing you've ever said about me, Brian. I, well, I mean, like, I have to practice. I, I say one nice thing about you per, like, quarter, yeah, right? That's, so that's that's my one thing. Got it. <laughs> that's not, and that's, that's not true. I've said you're an excellent parent many a time. That's true. Uh, compared to a lot of the, like, dumpster fires you and I both have seen on social media. So let's let's take it that way. So welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's, like, two main reasons I invited you here. Obviously, the first is sort of... Um, I want to talk about like all things like movie rights related when it comes to comic books. But firstly, I want to talk about some more pertinent news that came out this week, um, which is like really, really big, I guess, in the comic book industry. But to those outside, uh, kind of like inside baseball, so I kind of like unpack this with you. Um, so a number of creators, including uh, James Tanian, James Tinian, 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 I think. Tinian. Let's go Tinian. Yeah. Um, who's the current writer of both of uh, the main Batman title as well as the Joker series from DC has announced that he's leaving those two titles in order to join Substack, which is obsessively a newsletter service. Yep. So uh, basically what he's done is he said he has a bunch of creator properties, including something is killing the children, the department of truth, et cetera, et cetera. But he's walking away from a big two paycheck in order to concentrate on his um, creator stuff. And what Substack has done is given me him a $250,000 fund like a grant that he gets to use as he wants. And they take uh, 80% of all the subscription fees for the first year. And then he's allowed to retain 90% subsequently. And this is on the back of Scott Snyder announcing uh, that he's releasing eight different comic books through Comixology, which is the Amazon subscription service um, to be printed out uh, by Dark Horse. So he's worked out a digital first print second kind of thing. Um, Ed Brubaker is also currently doing that with uh, his Strip Friday over on Strip Syndicate. And then Jonathan Hickman also yesterday has announced that he's also hopping on the Substack train. So there's like this huge shift of uh, creators joining uh, this uh, obsessive newsletter uh, uh, platform in order to make a ton of money, which is just, it's a weird shift. And I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about the ways in which the comic book industry has shifted. We've talked about these things. So first, like, how do you feel about this move? Um, uh, is it more of the same? Do you think this signals something new in the industry for like popular writers? So it's, it's very communist, right? It's the creators taking control of the means of production. So they don't really have to go through an intermediary because of Substack's interface in order to get their work out there. So it's, it's kind of, a the next stage of what independent comics companies have been doing for decades now, since image was started in the early nineties, which is, um, kind of taking out the big corporate structure 
but even now taking out the small corporate structure too, because as these independent companies have grown over the decades, Image, Dark Horse, Boom Studios, all of those, like a company is still a company. And, um, and it seems like this Substack deal is allowing them to kind of really just use the Substack platform to get their work out there. And it, it doesn't appear as if there's any kind of marketing behind it. So they're kind of using their names to market themselves. And um, after that first year, uh, really cutting out uh, much of the middleman at all, um, which is interesting because um, technically, I mean, the way comics have always been done is there's there's always been an intermediary between the creators and the audience. That's just how publishing works. Um, and it seems like this is a an interesting, although not totally, like you said, not totally new. Um, people have been releasing comics digitally for years and years and years now direct to their audience. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, Brian K. Vaughn started the panel syndicate where you could yep. pay what you want and they uploaded PDFs to, to a website and you, you put in what you wanted to pay and you downloaded it and it was yours. So I'm having trouble seeing the difference between that other than um, just the sheer amount of star power that has signed on to this in, in fairly short order, which appears to be Nick Spencer's doing. Well, yeah, so Nick Spencer uh, seems to be acting as a, like, recruiter for all these because he was signed up as an ambassador a couple of months ago, and then he just, I don't know if he's directly brought all these people in to Substack necessarily, but it seems interesting that he is sort of, like, the harbinger of, like, things to come. Um, funnily enough, though, and this is the most confusing thing, something we talked about, uh, no one's quite sure how these comics are going to show up. They're not quite sure how they're going to be distributed, if it's going to be PDFs, if it's going to be like another file format, if it's just going to be actual web comics. Um, to my understanding and, and the digging I've done the last day, like these writers are only signed up to provide content, but the content hasn't been outlined, but it's assumed it's going to be um, uh, com content. Right. Uh, I, I know that um, Scott Snyder talked a little bit with his... Um Actually, with Snyder, so uh, a New York Times article came out today actually about this, um, and there's a couple other big name creators, Ram V, um, Saladin Ahmed, um, and Scott Snyder is actually now, in addition to his comicsology deal, is going to have another deal with uh, Substack specifically for prose work. So it's not only uh, it's not only necessarily limited to uh, to comic book um, content, um, but prose content and other. Uh, other kind of creative content from comic book creators. That seems to be the common thread. And it's kind of weird because um, usually, ostensibly, if you're talking about, you know, comic book creators, uh, these are mostly writers, you know. Um, I do think that, like, people like Scotty Young have also been, like, looped into the Substack deal, but it seems largely people who are, like, the um, the word architects of a lot of these properties that they've made their names on are now just joining the fray. And I think the big difference here is the the sort of, like, the, the discretionary fund they're given to sort of do as they want, um, whether it be... Uh, uh, paying artists or uh, subcontracting other writers to write on titles they don't want to do. Like, it seems like there's a lot of possibilities with that money because that money isn't earmarked specifically for any sort of like product creation. It's just earmarked based on the fact that like they've bought the rights to these creators' time and they have to do a certain amount of posts per week. But apart from that, they're not told what kind of posts they need right. to make. Yeah, no, I would imagine the majority of this this upfront fee that they're this grant that they're getting, uh, I would imagine the vast majority of that is going to go to paying artists. I mean, as um, someone who has tried and failed to get comics of his own up on uh, off the ground, <laughs> uh, finding capital for an art team is 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 the it's that's the turning point. That's the do or die. Um, as someone who is primarily a writer, as I am. 
um my 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 ultimate stopping point was you know trying to convince people to do it for free first which no one wants to do of course nor should they uh well i was about to say like uh you know like doing it for exposure like it's the old like music industry adage or like the old like uh like social media that's all the the big rage right trying to get people to do stuff right for, for exposure it doesn't it doesn't really work that way unless it's someone who probably shouldn't be exposed um <laughs> <laughs> i've learned i mean that's 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 a pretty yeah it's a pretty fair way of looking at it actually yeah i mean if you're a good enough writer to draw comics you're a good enough writer to get paid you're if you're a good enough artist to get paid to draw co- to to draw comics, uh, you're a good enough artist to get paid by an actual company to do it. So, and that's the funny thing too is that like I feel like you were totally right in that like the biggest um, cost and the the most amount of money that will uh, change hands is is through artists. And uh, David Harper once sketched did a whole like eight things I thought about the Substack deal kind of thing. And one of his points that was really interesting is that the big indirect winner of all this probably will be Image Comics because of the fact that they now have access to a whole wealth of properties to put out and to license from and to make money of because they don't have to worry. Like image has never really apart from like, uh, you know, the early, early, early founder stuff, like really put out, um, uh, and paid for, for artists, mm-hmm. right. You, you kind of give them a complete work and they put it out on your behalf. Right. Which is, which, yeah, I think that's the main difference between, uh, it's funny that uh, I used to work with David Harper. So it's funny that, uh, that was his stance. Um, <laughs> Yeah, back back in the day, he and I uh, he and I worked together. But um, do you want to get into is... that at all? Do you want to talk about your your, your history? No, about, like uh, no. Okay, perfect. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> I figured um, that was a no go, but I, I yeah. thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah, that's a no go. But um, it's interesting that he should say that because I actually know that he has a very strong relationship with Image, and he has for a couple years. Um, so I, I don't know that Image specifically will benefit, uh, but I think independent comic companies um, like like your Dark Horses, your Booms. I mean, when you when you are an independent comic company, you kind of take a chance on the creators that you bring in just like the big two marvel and dc do as well although they obviously have more securities in place because people are going to buy spider-man no matter who's writing it and who's yeah. drawing it realistically yeah. speaking but um to me it seems like the primary difference for this is um it's kind of when those companies are going to make their money right so my understanding with image and any really big name independent comics company is you're not really getting that guarantee up front. You're no, probably exactly. getting a little bit to get to work and then the rest is based on sales. So the nice thing about the Substack thing for the creators is your money is in your pocket. So you're getting paid no matter what, which I have no idea where Substack got the capital for this, but I mean they're 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 a startup. They've been paying um writers for a while under their Substack Pro um program. Yeah. Um uh, some very questionable characters uh, there's like rumors that like Glenn Greenwald is one of them. Um, and I think it's pretty much confirmed that he's being paid. Yeah. It's like, it's really weird. Like Substack, like uh, on one end, like there are several newsletters that I follow and subscribe to that I really, really enjoy that I pay like maybe like 20 or 30 bucks a year on that. I'm really keen on at the same platform. It's just like, there's a ton of like um, uh, eyeballs being drawn there by like people that I do not want to be associated with either. So it's very, it's a weird ecosystem because this is not a visual medium. No one could just see my stanky face. <laughs> Yeah, I was about to say you you did not look happy in the least when I when I said the the last couple of sentences. So Yeah. Yeah, no. So um it, it, I mean it seems like it seems like an interesting new um approach to um to the industry wherein um I don't know how long it could last to be totally honest because I mean they're if they're if they're, you know, if they're betting on this this uh this idea working, they're certainly tying their destinies to some very profitable horses. I mean Nick Spencer, Scott Snyder, Jonathan Hickman, um, uh, Scotty Young, 
James Tiny, and like these are some of the biggest names in comics right now and for the last 10 years. So if if anyone could get uh, if anyone could move units um, just based on name uh, on name recognition alone, it's these guys. Um, I don't know how much of a platform this is going to prove. I don't know how useful of a platform this is going to be for people who don't have that kind of name recognition. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because to me, like, I mean, like a, a lot of artists and writers are already using Patreon. Like, for example, like Epsis Core is doing, um, uh, he's doing Red Room, which is just basically like every week or so he throws up a couple of pages and uh, he's managed to get like physical issues through Fantagraphics. Right. Right. So he's, so like Patreon is definitely like another way of doing it, but it's just a question of like how, like how much money, uh, you know, because with, with Patreon, they're not offering, like they didn't sign anyone. These are just creators independently just going out there and like creating a fan base based off of the work they've already done versus like Substack is like here's a slush fund for you to like go have fun right. with and so I, I guess the big the big thing will be like uh, September 2022 I guess we'll see how things shake out if we last until then with Substack yeah no and 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 to to, to Harper's point um you know if Substack is not if if physical distribution is not part of any of these deals then it is a major boom for um, for independent companies like Image and Dark Horse because they can then take an entire property one and done and just put out a trade, which is where they make most of their money anyway. Um, Absolutely, yeah. A trade paperback is a collection of paperback of comics in paperback <laughs> for those folks who... who Thanks, uh, Josh. You're, you're welcome, Brian. No, this is, this is exactly <laughs> it. Like, you and I talk about these terms all the time. Like, you know, like I, I had to, I accidentally used the word floppy out loud right. the other day. And I was like, I had to explain, oh, it's a single issue. Don't worry about it. Yeah. That has context to people that don't read comics, Brian. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, similarly though, you've, you've partaken in subscription services mm-hmm. um, um, online. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was kind of wanted to pick your brain about how you felt about these, the, the existing subscription services and like where you see the future of, of those moving forward, right? Like Marvel Unlimited, yeah. you know, DC's uh, Comixology, like all of these, I'm kind of curious, like yep. what your take is on on the larger three i think that um so like you said I, i'm currently a marvel unlimited subscriber i've been uh dancing around um the dc uh universe which is the comp- uh, just competitor of marvel unlimited um the thing that hasn't gotten me uh into dc universe is because there's a six month lag between what's on the shelf yeah. and what's on the app whereas on marvel unlimited it's three months they made a big deal of moving that uh, last year and i think marvel unlimited subscriptions like skyrocketed after that i certainly came running back um because three months i think is kind of the sweet spot uh and they realized like i understand why it can't be day and date on marvel unlimited that totally makes sense to me i don't need it to be it's it's not quite netflix for comics like it is for comicsology but um Six months by t- by six months nobody cares. By three months it's already in the dollar bin at a comic shop. So three months I think is the sweet spot, and I think once, um, I think once uh, DC and and uh, I know Comicsology runs their own unlimited. Um, I've thought I've looked into that as well, just because it's not limited to one publisher. Uh, but Marvel Unlimited is the only one at this point who gets my money, just because they brought it down to three months. And um, if there's one thing comic fans want, it's to feel current, to feel like like not feeling FOMO, to, to feel like that they're staying with the stories that they've been following for years and decades. Um, and a three month lag is is I think uh, the perfect compromise sweet spot. So I think once um, once more companies other than Marvel come around to that idea, and obviously Marvel could take that chance because they're Marvel and they make billions of dollars a year, which we can talk about in a second. Um, but um, I, I think um, I remember maybe two or three years ago um, 
there was uh, Donny Cates' latest crusade against comic piracy. And obviously comic yeah. piracy is, is, is not a good thing. Taking money out of creators, especially independent creators, is not is not wise. But one of the biggest arguments um, for it by some of the folks who are kind of fighting him on Twitter about this was, I don't have a comic shop for like 30 miles or like I live in Algeria and there's no like the, next, the first comic shop is four countries away. Right. I'm just using an example. There might be comic shops in Algeria, and if I just and if I just <laughs> we insulted them, done a deep dive. if I just insulted them, I'm sorry. But um, the, the the biggest idea is like you know I want to follow these stories, um, and I and 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 I and I can't get access to comics in that same way. Um, and of course, even at that point, the argument was bullshit because you can download Comicsology anywhere in the world, near as I can tell. But um, yeah. but the idea of of kind of creating a user first and a reader first um a, a system which is kind of what marvel limited is it's i mean it's 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 you know lots the people in las vegas figured this out a while ago when you offer people a buffet you know they're going to come in and they're going to pay the entry fee and they're probably not going to use as much as they think they will but they're still paying to get in there so I think um, that is where the industry might be headed. Um, but if we've learned anything in the COVID pandemic, it's that comic shops actually hold a lot of sway in this in- industry. And they've also exploded in terms of like uh, revenue over the last like uh, 18 months or so too, right? right. Which has been like crazy to see. Right. I, I like, in the back of my head, I kind of didn't realize exactly how much brick and mortar retailers still held sway um, in the industry. Um, although, uh, what's happening with, uh, diamond, uh, diamond comics, which for decades and decades has been the distributor for comic books, for Marvel, for DC, for any superhero you've heard of and, and, and not heard of, you know, this Brian, your listeners, your listeners might not, but, um, diamond kind of held a monopoly on distribution up until the pandemic. And the reason they no longer hold that monopoly is because diamond at the distributor level shut down to keep their workers safe. And in the meantime, um, Marvel and DC primarily uh, went out and struck new deals that were more beneficial to them to get their comics out there. Um, so, well, I mean, Marvel stuck around Diamond for longer. Yes. DC was the first to like really within weeks like break in order to get books out there, and has created like a whole other ecosystem for like actual like comic book retailers. Like my comic book shop that I visit, like they are not fans of using multiple systems to try and track something down for someone. No. Uh, and now Marvel moved full on into Penguin Harcourt, who are not who are not comic book distributors. Um, and but they are they are book distributors, and in Canada, it actually works out because they are already distributing a bunch of stuff. So it actually like helps um, uh, a lot of uh, comic book shops get things faster due to right. like the way in which like things are like bulk shipped in Canada because we have our own printers here. Uh, and something really interesting too is like there's all this speculation for collected editions for like. Uh, either graphic novels or omnibuses, which are just gigantic collections of comic books to stay in print because these things constantly fall out of print. And like you go to eBay and if you didn't get the window of like six months after it's released for, for an omnibus or something, something that'll cost you like a hundred bucks, something will be like three to four. Um, So there's like a theory now that like more stuff will stay in print because the warehouses can support that, that uh, you know, because they weren't paying the space that they were diamonds. Right. Exactly. So, um, I don't know. It's it, it's it's hard to say. Part of me likes that um, a lot of the old systems and a lot of the old methodologies are breaking down. Like I, I I haven't necessarily been a traditionalist or a purist when it comes to comics. I mean, I had my years where I was, but I haven't been so much lately. Um, and I I kind of like that creators are branching out and trying to kind of 
carve more of a space for themselves in the industry. Because, um, you know, the first people who are forgotten when it comes to, like, say, royalties from a billion dollar uh, movie industry, um, it's usually the creators who are forgotten. And if something like Substack um, kind of puts, you know, back to that, you know, that Marxist model of the means of production back into the hands of people who are actually doing the work um, and then having them see the benefit of that. Um, I, I, I'm all for it. Uh, I don't know where it's going. <laughs> I don't know how profitable it'll be ultimately. I mean, a lot of people were, you know, a year ago this time, people were getting really excited about Quibi and now it's an afterthought. So uh, wait, like, a, I don't know if I use, if I characterize that as like a lot of people, okay. certain people, certain people, so like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cause a lot of people had said like it was Dune from the start, like, like phone first 10 minute episodes. And like, I mean like what, like Roku ended up snatching up all of those properties for like a, like a pittance. Like it was a crazy good. Deal and now they're doing pretty well on Roku from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's all about being able to watch things on, on a device that isn't um, uh, like portable and mobile and like actually given the space to be able to just like sit down right. in a sedentary way and enjoy the content right? right but where i give where i give quibi some credit is like you know sensing you know what's happening in the zeitgeist and trying something that meets that need and um blowing through billions of dollars and blowing through billions of dollars right? yeah exactly right <laughs> so maybe substack maybe substack is quibi and maybe substack is comicsology <laughs> like you don't you don't know yet <laughs> So apparently there's a female ghost in this apartment building who thinks I'm attractive. <laughs> That's a great place to leave it. And we've been hinting at this a bunch, but something else we want to talk about is the way in which creators are or aren't getting paid when their properties are adapted, especially for um, TV and film. So I'm going to throw a link in the show notes to a Guardian article that Josh and I have been reading and talking about all about how like certain creators are being paid like uh, $5,000 for their creations when they appear on TV or in a, you know, a gigantic Marvel property, which is just insane to me. But it also, I think we need to unpack a lot of like why that's happening too. So uh, firstly, I think the, the most important thing to understand is when you work for Marvel or DC, a lot of the time you um, are work for hire. You do not own these characters, though there are, um, if you do create a character while working there, there are agreements in place. And usually it's like three to 5% of anything that the character grosses. Uh, I've heard Rob Liefeld talk about this ad infinitum about how like Deadpool is like keeping the lights on for him, no matter what he decides to do. But uh, when you work there, you're kind of like at their mercy uh, because you're utilizing their sandbox in which to create your stories. Um, so there's no specific kind of allegiance given um, to when uh, one of the big two turns around and decides to adapt one of these stories or one of these characters or their looks. Yep. I mean, uh, comics have always been work for hire from the moment that they, they existed. It's, it's been, you know, you, you create the thing and the publisher owns it. And you know, that's, you know, that's 1930s logic and it's applied in, in, in the modern day. Cause that's, I mean, a lot of people would use the phrase. It's just how it's always been done. Um, and it's unfortunate when you learn someone like Ed Brubaker, uh, who created the winter soldier, who then, uh, went on to, uh, star in multi-million dollar, several multi-million dollar movies, um, and a very successful, uh, subscription service driving, uh, Disney plus series. And he got 5,000 bucks and didn't even get invited to the premiere. So it's, it's one of those instances where, um, it's 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 the difference between can and should right so contractually marvel really doesn't owe these people much um beyond what they're giving them but it, 
I think the fact that this is coming up now is going to generate some negative PR for them. So we might see a little bit of a change because that's the only thing that causes change with a company that big um, is negative PR. Well, I mean, you, you go back to the 70s and 80s where yeah. the policy in Marvel and DC was that like you didn't, if you're an artist, you didn't even get your art back. Right. Because a lot of artists would, that's how they would make a second source of income because they weren't necessarily making uh, a ton of money, um, uh, you know, creating their like 22 or 17 pages a month, but they're able to like flip their art for a decent amount of money on the side and be able to sort of like sustain living. Like right. That. And there was always that gray area about conventions where like what people were allowed to draw. And I think the comic industry gave up on that a long time ago, probably in like the 80s or the 90s of like, if you're at a convention and you're the guy who drew Captain America and you draw Captain America with somebody, like we're not going to, we're not going to try and get a cut of that, but um, like, or more infamously, if you draw Captain America, but someone wants you to do like a killer Joker, then like do the killer Joker too, right? Like it's this weird kind of free for all where like, uh, like it's like gentlemen's agreements made across the board right. uh, between like fan and creator. Right. I mean, and then you have, I don't know if you know the story of Bill Mantlo, the guy who created, I mean, storied comic book writer. Uh, he created Rocket Raccoon amongst other things. And he was seeing zero from Guardians of the Galaxy when it came out. And he and and this is a guy who had like serious health problems and I think was in like uh, like a, a vegetative state at some point like serious serious medical issues and his family wasn't receiving anything and his creation was making Marvel like money hand over fist and I think eventually they made some kind of an agreement because the PR got so bad but um, I mean it's 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 kind of one of those things that's that's unfortunate but um, technically legal. <laughs> I think really, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. like we, I think we're dancing around the, the concept of like, we've like a very naked capitalism. I feel is like the running thread here of the entire episode is just talking about like, uh, ways in which people can earn living through, through their art. Right. Um, and how difficult it can be to get that recognition. Right. For example, like Jack Kirby, right. Like co-created, uh, you know, uh, infamously drew so many of the, the early Marvel properties. He wasn't able to get his art back. Like there was a huge fight up until the end of his life. Um, and there's so many of those kinds of stories, you know, like the, the, uh, Schuster and Siegel who created Superman, you know, that too was like a huge battle for the longest time. Um, and so like, it's, it's kind of funny because I've been reading a lot of people saying like, well, if you don't want to work for Marvel or DC, just like, don't do it. And it's kind of this like weird thing where it's just like, it's hard to be in that ecosystem and like have a desire to write a lot of these storied characters, but then also get the recognition for the actual like, like input or like footprint you create at the same time. It's like, it's a very delicate balance between the two. Well, that's what uh, James Tinian was saying uh, in his big Substack announcement was the traditional, um, the traditional route for a comic creator these days is like do the tiny indie book and don't get make, don't make any money on it. Like basically make enough money to break even or not. Um, get noticed by Marvel or DC, go write the characters and the stories that you don't own, um, make enough money to then go back and tell the stories that you want to do. And that's kind of been the circle for the last couple of decades. And he at least sees this Substack idea as a way out of that because they kind of take the earning and, and front load it. So you actually have the ability to keep your lights on and write the stories you want to write and um, if you're smart with your money, you can make that ride through um, until until the company is no longer taking uh, as big of a cut. But it's definitely a risk. I, I, 
Oh, well, yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, like, the perfect example of someone whose career definitely did that is Ed Brubaker. Like, we keep talking about him, but he did um, some minor stuff at DC. He did some Catwoman. He did Captain America. He did Gotham Central. And then uh, broke through, and has he's done a bunch of stuff with Sean Phillips, right? He's done Kill or Be Killed, Fatal, mm-hmm. uh, Criminal. And now he's doing he's doing his original graphic novels, like his OGNs, uh, with the Reckless trilogy, which is now apparently going to be five books. Like, so it's very interesting to see, like, how he's, he's able to, like, swing that back around and do what he wanted. Right. And also, like, uh, people who go and write for Marvel and DC take a lot of heat. But, like, if someone's goal was to write Spider-Man, let them go write Spider-Man. Like, that takes a lot of work. <laughs> I feel there's a lot of, uh, of like, analogous um, um, kind of, like, sentiments in terms of, like, thinking about the way in which comic book writers and artists are seen as well as, like, musicians, right? The idea of selling out. I feel is like, is way less... Um, uh, sort of like a, a used vernacular these days versus like the way that it was traditionally even like up to like 10 years right. ago. I think society, most of society has come around to the idea that artists should be paid and, and, and seeking out payment is, is not, uh, is not necessarily the, uh, the scarlet letter that it once was. I, I think the people have started viewing um, artists in like uh, three dimensions a lot of the time versus like uh, it being like a fan, creator transactional kind of thing like there's there's never been like the human element and i feel like finally there is a little bit of humanity showing up um in a lot of the ways in which like pop culture um interfaces with with capitalism or like a commercial aspect to it i think so and i think the only reason that happened is because it came became profitable for these bigger companies to let that happen it's like i said yeah. like creators aren't going to get kicked back unless unless it ends up in the news so i guarantee ed brubaker is going to be invited to you know the next the captain america 4 premiere or whatever Oh yeah, I mean, like depending on how it goes, like Nick Spencer too, right? Depending on which stories they decide to cherry pick. Now that the Falcon is the Captain America, right? Like, exactly. Uh, I also invited you to obviously to talk about um, uh, your thoughts about Secret Empire. Obviously, no, I didn't. But just imagine. Oh my god. <laughs> which I so I re- so anyone who isn't aware of Secret Empire, this is like the infamous miniseries in which like it is revealed that Captain America uh, is a Hydra agent, which is analogous to like him being a Nazi. Uh, so like, there's a lot of like hubbub about that and the way that he you know finish the miniseries was like fine but it's just it was so tonally jarring when i read it because i read the run-up to it too and i was just like this is i understand that like the shock factor managed to move units but like the story wasn't all there for it either it wasn't all there for it and it was relying a lot on what was happening in the united states to kind of uh platform it for itself um it was it was it was very much a a cheap grab at uh the headlines of like is america moving towards fascism look what happens when that might happen or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, yes, America is moving towards fascism, but Captain America isn't going to teach us that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's funny you say that because, like, thinking about like um, uh, the ways in which like uh, like real world events have like sort of influenced a lot of comic books out there. They like uh, turn the old uh, Superman smashes of the clan serial into like a miniseries, and like there was like a weird uproar about that, which was very confusing to me about why people would have any sort of negative sentiments about that, but. That exists. It was it was a beautiful little miniseries. Gene Luen Yang uh, wrote it, and um, I, I read it uh, maybe five six months ago now, and and I, I quite enjoyed that miniseries. I don't understand the hubbub, and the hubbub is, you know, white people don't like to <laughs> appear to white people don't like it when uh, you call out their faults. I suppose. Well, I mean, like it's going on right now with the Chris Cantwell Captain America miniseries, where people like like Chris Cantwell is like voicing right. concerns that Steve Rogers slash Captain America has about America, and suddenly like it's it's anti-American, it's this HJW narrative of like a broken America, when like really there's so many examples of Captain America questioning like uh, societal happenings within the country that like date back to like 
50, 60 years now almost. It's just Dean Cain and Kevin Sorbo desperately trying to extend their 15 minutes. Um, I, I pay that no mind. <laughs> but it's just, it's so much, it's so funny to watch because, yeah, Dean Cain was, I do believe, on Fox talking about this recently. It was just another unhinged clip of him sort of like trying to connect dots that, that aren't necessarily there. It's, right. It's the weirdest thing. And then he admits that he didn't even read the comic. Well, I mean, like, that's the thing is a lot of these critics don't even, like, admit to the fact that they know what they're talking about or, like, the source material is there, but, like, unavailable to them for whatever reason. Yeah. And, like, let's be honest, like, it's not a 900-page book. Like, you can sit down and, like, bang out, like, a 32-page issue in, like, what, like, 10, 15 minutes if you're really trying to, like, speed through it? Tops. Well, especially with, like, decompressed time in a lot of these, like, n- newer DC books. Yes. Yeah, well, no, that ca- I, I, I've been reading that Captain America miniseries. Uh, it's it's pretty good. Uh, you know, I, uh, I don't have any major issues with it. I like, I sort of like where they're going. Um, I could very see easily see them not sticking the landing on it, but we'll see. It's only two issues in. It's two of six, right, I think? Uh, five or six. It's five or six, like I can't remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so weird that, like, it ends up being de facto, like, five or six. You never quite know, because classically, like, a miniseries, like, four or six. Right, exactly. Uh, what else are you reading these days? I'm kind of curious. Uh, I'm still mostly, I mean, speaking of Jonathan Hickman, I'm still mostly reading the X-Men books. Um, all of them. Uh, you know, I, I got really back into it with uh, the House of X, Powers of Ten um, miniseries from a couple years ago. I really, I mean, I've Dude, always... Actually, it's the second, today is the second anniversary of the like, X-Men of number the one. first issue, or, yeah. Or, like, of House of X, yeah, coming out. Yeah, so. I remember that. Um, I, I was actually in the hospital with Lyme disease when I read that on my tablet, <laughs> <laughs> on my tablet as, as it happens. I completely forgot about that. That's true. Yes. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I still, um, they've managed to keep me interested over two years. So I, I guess as far as the storyline goes, um, that's pretty good. Um, I'm worried just as, as a longtime comic fan, I know storylines tend to change, like it, it, I know that the the status quo that brought me back into the books is going to change. I just have hope that it's going to be something that I'm still going to be entertained with. Well, I mean, like, they rebooted X-Men, right? right. Like, with Al Ewing. So they did 21 issues, I think, with Hickman, and yeah. then, like, Jerry threw it back into, like, Jerry Duggan. number one. Jerry Duggan, I think, not Al Ewing. Sure, Jerry Duggan, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes. No, I'm... Th- I've got Immortal Hulk on the mind yeah, a lot yeah, these yeah. days because it's almost wrapping up. Um, and he's also helping out with Hickman in his, like, new world. Yeah. From what I understand, he's, like... I can't remember what it is. Like he's got all these people working on stuff. Like Ram V is like creating like an economic system for whatever he has in mind for his like Substack creation. It's crazy. I, I read what he wrote about it and I still don't understand it, but I know Vita Ayala, Al Ewing and and Ram V are working on it. I'm super curious to see like when stuff starts trickling out because like Hickman is one of these writers where like you get a lot of like, (laughs) like for lack of a better word, like supporting documentation. Yeah. It's not just the comic pages themselves, but a lot of like, like quote unquote, like internal documents or like uh, explanations or like sort of like um, not meta, but like it's in universe stuff, but like sort of like to help frame a lot of what's like going on. Right. And and I mean, and and that can that can be really hit or miss. Right. So, I mean, I've, I've loved Jonathan Hipkin for a while. Um, I, from way back when he was doing like, uh, the nightly news and, uh, Pax Romana and all of his initial, um, independent stuff and his, or and his, his run it on fantastic four at Marvel is one of the best runs all time, full stop on fantastic four. Um, but then his Avengers run is completely forgettable because it got too cerebral. I think it's, yeah, and the way that it then led into Secret Wars, which was a decent miniseries, but the build up to that was so long coming that like no one cared after. Long. Right, exactly, and like you, you can't, you can't stick your landing when you've built when when you're when you're that high. Like, 
Yeah, and then he spent a bunch of time like uh, uh, sort of like uh, creating a coda for it, but like the thing didn't even need a coda. Like it was the weirdest right. kind of setup. And I, I was wondering if that like once again like editorially like he got messed with and like had to like go about and sort of like uh, uh, make peace with what he was being told upstairs to with, with that. I think that's true. And then I think uh, the free reign he was given with the X office was kind of the mea culpa for that. Um, yeah. But yeah. then look how that ended up in terms of like, he hasn't written much. He's doing the Inferno crossover in a couple of months, but right. apart from that, he isn't really active in the day to day from what other um, creators have, have sort of explained. Well, I think it's because he's putting a lot of his energy towards the Substack thing. Like I think he kind of saw the off ramp, I mean, and he he went on record saying, like, he was really scared as someone who makes his living um, through comics when Diamond shut down through the pandemic. Like, I think that's where a lot of this, um, I think that's where a lot of this, uh, this fleeing to Substack is coming from. I think when Diamond shut down, a lot of creators kind of saw how quickly um, their, their cash stream can dry up and yeah i feel yeah. like every sort of creative in the comic book field right now is is has a plan b of some sort of mind right whether it's like creating a podcast or a video podcast or like creating like a how-to or you know selling manuals or it, like uh, giving writing courses or anything like that i feel like a lot of people have have diversified through the last like 18 months or so in order to sort of make sure that even if another uh, industry-wide shutdown happens that they're not left high and dry so right quickly. exactly and like you know the first the, the you know this first one was only like eight and a half weeks or something but when you're when you're a low-level marvel artist and you're probably not even drawing for marvel you're probably just keeping your lights on eight weeks can be a really long time with no income for sure and especially like um there is a delay right sometimes getting paid like getting your pages out and like making sure they end up in actual like physical copies or even on like marvel unlimited because right. there was that whole discussion at one point of like throwing everything up on marvel unlimited um and and dc universe just to like see how that went as an experiment and uh, it's kind of analogous to a day and day release of of marvel movies right because like right now scarlett johansson is like suing marvel over black widow so like you know there's there's no clear-cut winners or losers here when it comes to to any sort of models like suicide squad didn't do as well as everyone thought they did at the box office even though uh, it was a really good movie we could both attest yep. to that it's exactly the kind of movie james gunn excels at yeah but everybody streamed it nobody went to the theater to see it because nobody wanted to like it wasn't worth it enough for people which is sad because like I went to go see it in theaters and I actually thought that like it was my first time going back to theaters since uh, I don't really want to talk about this. But like we got advanced screening tickets to Bloodshot and that's the last time my wife and I were in theaters. Yeah. So, um, you know, being able to go see like a really fun movie in a large screen like that, especially like spoiler alert, um, seeing Starro on screen. Yeah. Like it's such a large sort of like space was like super cool to see. Yeah. Um, I was fine watching it uh, in my living room. Yeah. I mean, like I, that's what we did for Wonder Woman 84. Thankfully, I would have not have paid to see that otherwise because yeah. it was... Not a great movie, yep. but yep. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see um, if Marvel, depending on how things go with Delta, if they end up pivoting in a couple weeks with Shang-Chi, if they decide to throw it up there too. I feel like they won't, um, but we'll see. I mean, same thing with the Eternals, right? Like it's, it's almost like two years late at this point. So, right. I mean, the fact that there are three Marvel, like Marvel movies coming out in four months is insane, but they're, they're hoping, I guess, to make all of their money back very, very quickly. Well, I mean, same thing. As, like the, I guess the other movie you're talking about is Spider-Man. Yep. So Spider-Man at the end of the year, I don't know how that's going to play out. Um, if they decide to do a hybrid model, which I, I can't see them doing that for Spider-Man. No, I think, I think if Shang-Chi gets people back in the theaters, then we're done seeing day and date on Disney plus. Um, but we'll see. But do you, do you think that like Shang-Chi is enough of a pull for like the average moviegoer who like, 
cares about Marvel, but doesn't like, is not invested in the characters, doesn't know the history necessarily. I mean, because it looks like a very dope movie, but I don't know if like to a casual viewer, it matters at all. I mean, the fact that Suicide Squad didn't get people into theaters might send a message to Marvel about that. Um, like Black Widow did, like Black Widow did pretty well in theaters. Um, but, but I mean, Black Widow is also PG-13 versus like in the States, like Suicide Squad is a hard R. True. True. So I think that's that's part. Even though like during my screening in Canada it was thirteen plus, there was a family there, and there were two kids, five and seven, who were there, and I was like, this is definitely not a type of movie you you show a five and seven year old, um, without giving them like very heavy like like talks beforehand and afterwards about like movie violence. There is a therapist who is going to make a lot of money off of that, <laughs> a couple of years down the road. But I, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but like you and I both know this French Canadian people operate differently. Uh, that is true. And I can say that as half a French Canadian and that like the way in which they treat media is like very, very, different. very, very different. That is true. Uh, that has been it for my thoughts about everything. Josh, do you have anything like any parting words? I, we didn't discuss this beforehand, but like, do you even want to list off your socials? Uh, I, I have started uh, a, a medium uh, pro- yes, let's do that. Pro- That's perfect. Profoundly odd. Uh, dot medium. Dot com. Um, I've I've tried. Which I will link to you in the show notes too, yes. so that way you can just go ahead and visit the the podcasting app of your choice and find yes. it. So don't worry about that. Uh, yeah, no, I write about I write about politics a lot. I write about comics a little bit. I write about movies. I write about parenting. Um, I'm going to try and get that updated a, a little bit more, but once I get back into the school year, but you knows. have been over the past couple months, like keeping it moving a little bit, a little like bit, this, yeah. your output this year. And you and I have talked about how your output has like waxed and waned throughout the years. I feel like yeah. this is like an upswing for you content wise. Yeah. The fact that I got two articles out in a month. Yeah. Great. Huge, yeah. huge yeah, upswing, exactly. Brian <laughs> <laughs> versus like how many last year? Uh, zero. <laughs> there we go. There you go. <laughs> there we go. That's 200% more. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and as always, people can go, go ahead and find us over on Twitter, double underscore density. Uh, you can visit us on Instagram, double density podcast. You can also hit up double density.net to find links to everything. Uh, Josh, I forgot to ask you this ahead of time, but I'm going to assume there's going to be, by the time the episode is at, a short bio with a picture of you on our guest page, as we do for all guests. So let's pretend it's there. Everyone can go see it. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and that has been it for the special edition of double density. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Brian. Um, like I said, I don't get a chance to talk about comic books ever on Double Density because my usual co-host Angelo apart from the movies is not a, a reader in that realm so like I really much like jumped at the, the thought of having you on um, and now that you have a mic like that's the other thing too is we <laughs> talked about doing something and you didn't have a mic for a while and like I'm a bit of a stickler for like audio stuff so I'm glad that you were able to like fix that up yeah 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 sound major I remember <laughs> <laughs> wow okay well uh, this is it i'm gonna cancel here i'm just gonna hit uh, uh close and just give myself the hero edit josh just deal with it <laughs> <laughs> see you around later buddy <laughs>